Elizabeth. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I should just say um, this is a sort of a sort of a provocation of sorts. It's a paper I've already given once. It's not a polished paper, so I'm, any comments you have will help me. I did swear after the last time I gave a paper in Oxford I would never give an unpolished paper again, but once I've finished them and polished them, I don't want to give them to an audience because they're done, so what's the point? Anyway, um, so there will be lacunae and all sorts of things that you might comment on. Um, I should also say it, it is hopefully fun for you on this last seminar of term, but I just found out that I knew Gina had been ill, but I didn't know that she died, so although it's fun, we should perhaps dedicate it to her, because um, I've known her a long time from visits to Oxford. So although we might have some amusement, let us send it to her, wherever she is. So the paper is called Dance Culture and its Dislocation, and it was a response to an invitation to participate in a panel at the AAA last year, in fact, a year to the day I was giving this paper in Philadelphia, um, uh, on the subject of meanings in motion. And I was a bit sceptical about this because we did all that in the 80s. And that was a PhD concern. But I wanted to explore the idea of motion and spatiality, which is something I was sort of being pressurised to do, being the geography department, uh, trying to make my stuff fit, human geography agenda. Uh, <laughs> with varying degrees of success. So what I'm doing today is using examples that I've spent many years working with from Java, and then I'm going to do a bizarre comparative exercise um, of these two very spatially defined kind of performances with uh, an example from cyberspace. So it's quirky, but what we do, we ethnomusicologists and dance people, we kind of do our own stuff and then suddenly we start doing bizarre comparisons. And please don't say we don't think it's an appropriate comparison. Because I hope by my paper will persuade you that even though it's a bizarre comparison, um, it does bring out some quite interesting things that might not have emerged had the comparison been more within the, con the sort of conventional domain. So space and cyberspace. Um, the research I'm doing with the French team, if we ever get the money, is um, in the area of the, how dance generates non-discursive meanings. Uh, so I am returning to the, dis the debates about meaning again in that project, and I will occasionally say something about non-discursive meaning in this paper, and also textualisation and textual meanings. But that's a kind of little sort of trying to link it up to ongoing new ideas new ideas that uh, hopefully will get funded. So um, my example is a Javanese court dance, which has been classicised as Indonesian high art, and secondly, marginalised ritual dancing, which has been excluded from the sphere of official culture. And I'm going to juxtapose these two cases um, with something that I discovered randomly while surfing the web idly when I should have been doing something more serious. Uh, displacement activity as research method. Um, Matt Harding's Where the Hell is Matt site. Anyone seen this? Hands up. Ha ha. One, oh, a few of you. Oh, well, you might want to go to sleep when I play you the clip. I'm so happy that some people know about Matt. It's my new sort of... Do you know about Matt? Oh, yes. It's a, okay. You're... 30 million people know about Matt. 
pair. So um, <laughs> Matt Harding does silly dancing. We could discuss whether it even is dancing at the end of this uh, of my talk. Um, and it's been disseminated in cyberspace through his Where the Hell is Matt website, um, YouTube, and many, many other uh, associated sites now. Um, just a sort of theoretical kind of background frame for this. Uh, in this paper, thinking about space, I don't want to do a whole big space place location discussion today particularly, um, but I want to think of space, I'm intending to think of space in terms of more than a setting, but um, as a sort of more phenomenological generative kind of entity um, where uh, the means whereby the positing of things becomes possible as Merleau-Ponty said way back in the phenomenology of perception Merleau-Ponty has actually influenced in a slightly odd way um, De Certo's idea of practice place and in the paper I talk about that a little bit more but I find that for a spoken seminar these things are perhaps best mentioned and put aside because the complexity is not very or it's not a performative kind of thing so when the paper's published you read about those and I do talk quite a lot about De Certo's idea of practice place in my book and, and, and critique it in relation to um, embodiment and discuss textual how textual De Certo is in his ideas of embodiment so there is a little bit of a disjunction between Merleau-Ponty and De Certo. De Ponty is so much about embodiment, De Certo tends to go back to textuality. Anyway, I'm going to focus on dancers' embodied action that generates non-discursive meanings, trying to resist a textual approach to it. Um, but using the Merleau-Ponty idea, we need to distinguish between dancers' embodied action, which is seen and dance which is experienced, and dance also as a system um, which is caught up in discursivity as well. It can't be divorced from that. Um, and how it engages with that depends on circumstances. So there is a kind of processual sort of system going on, and one can intersect in various ways, as you will see. Okay, so... Um, Beyond the appearance of control and skill of classical dance in the practice place, my first example um, comes from Javanese court dance, which has become one of the Indonesian classical traditions, one could say the paradigm of classical performance. And there's a very complex relationship between um, embodiment and sociocultural significance and the identifications which accrue to this particular kind of dance. Um, dance has a significance for the dancers, it has a, another significance for the audience in one locality where it's practiced, it's locality of origin, its signification changes um, at the level of nation and then yet again at the level of the international scene. Now, classical, I've got these slides are a little bit sort of sketchy but it's just to 
give you something kind of where we are. Classical dance developed in the ceremonial spaces of the colonial court, which was established in the um, 18th century during Dutch colonial rule in Java. And there's a long story that I won't go into. But nowadays, court is part of a classical Javano-Indonesian repertoire. And its extensive training produces embodied self-control and discipline, which is associated with a sort of Javanese expression of national identity. And this is also linked to the gendering of dance in Indonesia. Dance is very strongly differentiated by gender, even though there are crossovers and there's quite a lot of cross-gender performance, which I've been writing about too lately. But women's dancing um, in this tradition is exemplified by the court bedoyo dance. And this dance is an emblem of idealised femininity in Indonesia. Well, it's idealised femininity in Java and how it's imposed and spread across Indonesia is a matter of debate. And that has changed a bit in the last 10 years. The ideological force of this identification is actually exposed by the fact that during much of the colonial period, this femininity embodied in Bodoyo was actually performed by young men wearing women's clothes. So dance is highly gendered, but the gendering is not necessarily attached to biological men or women. Exemplary femininity can be enshrined in a young man's body. And, and that has been... Uh, this has become revived recently in Indonesia with certain controversy attached. And I have written about this in press. Um, nowadays, dancers come from all social classes and are trained in state dance academies and also private dance associations which are run by the elites who have kin ties to the court. But this... Um, there is complicated negotiation between the royal elites and nationalistic cultural brokerage because many of those people actually hold key positions within national cultural ministries, educational ministries, and they change their roles and arguments depending on what interests are coming up. And again, that complex process of locality and region and state um, is something I've talked about at great length in my book. So the court repertoire and its entry into classical Indonesian culture is actually not simple and it hasn't produced a homogenous sort of product. It's a very sort of dynamic and negotiated kind of situation which goes on changing depending on who's arguing for what. Now Bedoyo dance is one of the most exclusive and restricted court dances and I've talked about it as the dance of power for a number of reasons, partly because it's very rarefied and associated with court centres. It was very rarely performed. It was limited for specific occasions. It was exclusive to the sultan and his guests and very rarely allowed outside the court. It still belongs to the sultan. And I saw the sultan in September, Sultan of Georgia, who's provincial governor, and he was saying... Yes, you know, I'm trying to change, put my mark on Bedoya, make it more symbolic in the music and song. I want the songs to be more symbolic about philosophical meaning, and that's my contribution. So even today, um, uh, the regional uh, traditional king 
has an interest in putting his stamp on this kind of performance while being um, a nationalistic provincial governor, a duality that continues. The dance is scarce because it has nine dancers who all have to be very, very skillful because these dances are long and slow and the control and elegance of the movement is not easily acquired. I know because I spent years and years learning Javanese dance. I'm still hopeless at it. Certainly would not appear doing it. Um, court style Bedoyo lasts between an hour and an hour and a half, although some could go on for four hours. It also needs a full gamelan orchestra and a choir, so it is not easily transportable. It has tended to be place-specific, rooted in location. As is the case with most elite practices, um, Bedoyo dances resist any simple interpretation and decoding. And uh, Javanese people of all classes enjoy wordplay and making meanings, puns and so on and so forth. But Bedoyo remains very inaccessible due to its complex movement systems, floor patterns and literary references. But performers and connoisseurs of such performances play with a range of available references to generate philosophical meanings um, using ideas drawn from many different religious backgrounds, Hinduism, Tantrism, Sufism, Theosophy or Javanism. When I say performers, it's old retired performers because as far as the dancers are concerned, all these meanings that are generated in discussion outside the dance moment are external to the action of the dance as experienced. Dancers said to me that they don't know the philosophy, they don't really care about the philosophy. Um, they feel a sense of awe when they perform in the spaces of the court, but their main interest is in technical know-how, physical skill, um, learning to develop the concentration that is needed and the control, particularly in the legs and control of breathing. This dancing is extremely hard to do. It requires a lot of effort, but as in most dance forms, you don't show how much effort it is. Well, not in this kind. It's like ballet. You do it as gracefully as you can and you try not to let the audience show how much muscularity and effort is involved. So dissimulation is an important aspect of this kind of dance. Older connoisseurs spoke about dancers having different stages of skill, um, and the idea is that when you become very good at it, the movements become automatic, and the dancer faces God. There is a kind of transcendence, if you will. Um, they are freed from structural constraints. So you have a situation where you have performance doing these very elaborate choreographies at the heart of the power centres, and yet they are in some sense beyond it, not there. They're somewhere else. There's a sort of internal freedom from the situation they're in. This kind of performance is determined by spatial factors, location, knowledge, and established practice intertwine. And I'm going to come back after my second example to the question of how audiences experience these dances because I want to link it to the second um, Javanese case. Um, 
my subheading for this is men dancing with women can mean only one thing and it is not national culture. Um, functional analyses of dance movement in relation to person and social identity um, have often been polarised between liberation and communitas a la Turner on the one hand and surveillance and discipline a la Foucault on the other. It's very interesting, sort of. Um, perennial recurrence of this opposition and we find it in Indonesian cultural politics um, uh, in the, an, an aesthetics of dance classification where the court dance represents control and surveillance despite what I said just now about being a liberating experience for the dancers um, and it is approved and liberation with a tendency to wild disorderliness is represented by folk dances. These are events which are often sociable and fun, which Bedoya is not particularly fun, I have to say. Um, and these folk dances have been positioned outside officially recognised culture. Uh, between uh, 1965, there's a very specific date when this started due to political upheaval in Indonesia and um, the so-called uh, communist coup, which wasn't, but the, the outcome of this upheaval meant that the state repressed many folk performances due to their association, their alleged dis association with the discredited Communist Party. So this gave rise to an ideological contrast between positive evaluations of urban-originated classicism and negative ascriptions of the folk, which was associated with rural ways of life. And many of these performances were actually censored and banned um, until the government started to revive them as part of tourist development in the early 1990s. And it's um, significant that, that dancing is so often a focus of censorship and control. Um, this is a testament to its power to generate meanings which are associated with embodiment and experience. And this is one of the arguments I use in my book to critique the idea of the imagined community. People are trying to control what people do with their bodies all the time in the name of the state. Dances by semi-professional women, called ledek, um, perform at taubans, and these survive in very few places, in rural communities, often in highlands or in remote, impoverished regions in central Java. And they're done at annual harvest festivals or thanksgivings and at rites of passage. Urban Indonesians who have never seen tayuban will have strong opinions about them. They associate them with shameful sexual displays, lack of self-control and potential disorder. It's always interesting, people having strong views on things they know nothing about from direct experience. Value judgments made by different sectors of the elite and government at local and national level reflect feedback into general commentaries and prejudice, and they're also complicated by the political ideology I mentioned earlier. These female dancers you see in the picture, are stigmatised for their immorality and this is physically demonstrated in their culturally unusual proximity to male dancers who will take it in turns to pay for a dance with them. These women, uh, these women uh, will sing songs and do relatively simple dance routines as they sing. I'm going to come back to this. They learn from more experienced performers, so their, their training has been very much located in their own community. 
Uh, but nowadays, they are required to upgrade their dance skills by attending courses which are taught by somebody who's been trained in an urban academy. And the result is a lot more detail in the hands and tidying up of costumes and so on and so forth, particularly in the opening dance, which is in that picture. Interestingly, um, their choreographies have also been appropriated by um, dance academy trained choreographers and performers in order to vary the palette of dances available for tourists, although it hasn't worked very well because what they do with these is turn them into stage choreographies. The whole point about Taiwan is it's social dancing and when they have tried to do social dancing for tourists, the tourists don't really do it very well. They can't get into the idea that they're going to get up on stage and dance, especially Westerners, and they really don't like it. The other problem is that it's men only invited to dance, and occasionally women will try and usurp that. And I've been at occasions where there's been a lot of interesting resistance to that in the audience and gender wars breaking out. Quite fun. That's another paper. Uh, in village events, even the tidied-up dances do not show a lot of skill um, compared to the kind of dancing in Bedoyo. These are minimal performances. In some cases, the performances break down simply because of the duration of the performance. And in my research, I've seen dancers, dancers who have already performed from nine at night till four in the morning, dancing with different single men or groups of men, and then starting again at 10 in the morning and going through to 1 or 2 at the height of the day. Very, very hot. Um, and by that stage, their movements have become so minimal and they look so uninterested that um, it's questionable whether this is actually a dance performance anymore or rather something as embodied presence testifying to the village as community and the invisible presence of the local spirit for whom the dance turns are offered. So this is a kind of prayer, if you like, but the dancers are not possessed by the village spirit, but they will dance with him. You can't see that, of course. It's interesting that the effects of the efforts of court dancers are to produce a sustained flow of movement. The aesthetic is never stopping. This is where it's so hard to do for a long time. Whereas for women dancers at Taiyuban, fatigue takes over from artistry and the movement almost ceases. And sometimes they have that blank expression that the court dancers work hard to achieve. Ledettes are doing it because they're just so tired. So ritual inversion, in this case, also seems to apply to the ratio of meaning to effort. Uh, very little effort, but lots of ritual meaning is generated by these events. Come back to this issue of skill, where the interest is, and um, whether skill matters, um, when I introduced the clip from Matt. Before I, I come on to that cyberspace comparison, I just want to make a few points. This Taiyuban performance has a reputation for being associated with scandal, overly wild, um, non-cultural activity. It's associated with unleashed sexuality. But in fact, um, when I saw these events, I was really surprised at how orderly they were. 
there's a strict hierarchy through the event. So the first people who dance are the village leaders and their guests, and then the younger people are allowed to take the dance floor. So there's a strong hierarchy represented in, in Taiyuban. And also, there is always the threat of uh, regional censorship. So the host of the Taiyuban is always very miserable and unhappy because he's so worried that he will lose control and he will lose the right to hold these events in future because he wouldn't get a licence from the relevant official. So this unofficial culture still needs official permission um, to take place. And the liberated fun, this ostensible opposition, which I'm sort of questioning, um, is structured by both hierarchy, social hierarchy and legislation. Now, there's quite a lot of backstory here, which I try to simplify. When I spoke to Javanese people, friends now, because I've known them for so many years, um, about court dance and what it meant to them, they always emphasised not the meanings or the textual sort of interpretations, but what they talked about was their experience, their emotional experience when they watched. They spoke of bittersweet feelings of longing and nostalgia and there's a concept that goes back to 10th century Java called langu, which all Indonesians will mention when they talk about nostalgia. Um, but they didn't just talk about feelings, they talked about shared embodiment. They talked about sharing the breathing of the dancers, um, feeling the rhythms of their movements in their bodies, the gamelan providing sort of heartbeat. So this is a sort of shared body of experience. So this is not just a sort of visual response. This is, in fact, a lot of people don't watch these long court performances assiduously and some people do nod off um, and I've talked in the paper a little bit more about the idea of affecting presence which was an idea developed by Armstrong which um, is part of my argument against symbolism and textualisation um, where a work can bear power directly in such a way that it is experienced as more than a symbol this is real and this also links to the dance philosopher David Best's ideas about dance as really real, not symbolic activity. Um, I'll skip the bit. I mean, I could say more about Anderson and why, again, this argues against imagined communities. And uh, Anderson's very dismissive of dance in his book. He says just folk dancing like flags. Very sort of ignorant, really, of Anderson. Anderson, of course, I don't know if you know, was not allowed to go to Indonesia. He, he started doing research in Indonesia in the 60s and he was very critical, very rightfully so, of what happened in 1965 with the Communist Party. He was blacklisted. So I've always felt that Ben Anderson's discussion of imagined communities is partly a function of his you know, not being allowed to go and be there. He has had to do a lot of his work on Indonesia at a distance, although now he can go back. But anyway, um, one of the... Uh, ways that people watch Taiwan as well is not simply visually. Um, the dancing is pleasurable because it's social. The audience, uh, you didn't see the women in this, but the audience of women uh, watching are enjoying not so much the dancing of the women, but the antics of their menfolk. 
they kind of enjoy seeing their men try and get nearer to the women than is legally allowed. And they do stipulate distances. They say you're not allowed to get nearer than a metre or something. You know, it's all written down in the uh, permissions for these dances. So performativity in Tayuban is located as much in improvised male dancing as in the dancing of the hired dancers. We hear the women's song, we see the male dance. And this is a theme that we're going to come back to when we look at Matt. So we can admire the skillful male dancer, and that man was quite a performer. Uh, or we can also laugh at embar- the embarrassed ineptitude of other dance, uh, male dancers who have to perform, such as my uh, research assistant, who's never danced in his life, and he was made to dance as an honoured guest, and he did fantastically badly, and that is in my film about Taiyuban. Both of these examples travel badly. They're very much located in particular spaces. I have a section of the paper which talks about the dangers of reifying culture, um, culture as process, and the importance of recognising particular situations within process. But generally speaking, it's fair to say that these performances are not readily accessible or communicative to audiences who are not familiar with them. People will endure them, but they will not appreciate or enjoy them. So, despite variations within Javanese culture and critiques of Javanese culture that have been made by Westerners, to the great annoyance of Javanese people, incidentally, um, both my dance examples occur within a more general set of ideas about styles of embodiment which rely on cultural knowledge, a certain understanding of reference and context. Local knowledge is... Um, needed to really appreciate these things. And what is happening now in Indonesia, which is another story, is that shortened versions are being done for other Indonesians coming into the area, Java still, or for overseas tourists who really need a different kind of package, generally speaking. Although I do think sometimes the cultural uh, politicians underestimate the patience and interest of a section of tourism. Now, those two spaces of embodied embodiment and identity, the shared heartbeat of Javanese court dance and the scope for men to behave and dance badly, the fun at Taiyubans, are situated in location and the nation, processually and transformationally. I can't go into the details of how that works. But my next example is a cyberspace one where dance is spatially dislocated from its audiences, and the audience views the dance through the mediation of the web. But, as we're going to find out, the contrast between real space and cyberspace and how viewers are moved by the dancing is less stark than it might might at first appear. So, Matt Harding... He's an American in his 1930s. He travels the world. Some of you know as much as I do about this, but you might not know where I'm taking you. Um, and he performs the same simple dance routine, different, a bit like this, sort of running on the spot. Very consistent is Matt, I have to say. Um, in different locations, it's videoed, edited, and put up on his website and also on YouTube. And on the 1st of December, there were 33 million... 070850 hits. 
Um, it is possible to track Matt's location on his site and sign up on his dance list for notifications when he is dancing in a location near you. Um, and here's, I signed up. That's what it looks and get one of those. I invited him to dance at Philadelphia, he never replied. I thought it would be a great seminar paper, have him come in at the end. And I haven't tried this time, sorry. Um, in the third video, Dancing 2008, we see Matt dancing alone to camera in over 50 locations in countries including India, Bhutan, Fiji, Australia, the Solomon Islands, Rwanda, Australia, Korea, Japan, America, France, etc. The transmission of the dance on the web, the advertising of the next dance location, and the participation of the web audience then feeds back into the website. Is dance in cyberspace essentially different from dancing in offline places or first life, as we're starting to call it? Um, <coughs> as most of you will know, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the relationship between cyber communities or online communities and offline ones. Um, and I've been quite interested that a few... Um, ethnomusicologists who work in Indonesia have, or uh, Indonesianists generally have, have been running research projects at the same time as doing their Indonesian field work. When they're not there, they do their offline one. Uh, Rene Lisloff is one example, a very interesting study of, of online music uh, composition communities. And Tom Bulstoff, whose work on Indonesian sexualities, complemented by his ethnography of second life. Um, which I commend to you if you don't know it. Um, Matt's dance uh, generates community in different ways. Although the records of his dance travels are disseminated in cyberspace, the interest of Matt, for Matt's audience is the locatedness of the dance. He has to be on location, <laughs> even if it, this locatedness is mediated to the transpatial audience by means of the internet. Matt's dance videos provide entertainment value, a spectacle. And at the beginning of that, everyone, most of you had smiling faces, there were a few skeptics, you noticed. And then sagged a bit in the middle and it picked up. Um, you weren't laughing in the Taiba or Badoya, were you? Um, the locations range from the remote, um, in another video, it goes to Antarctica, to iconic tourist places, or what he refers to as postcards. Um, to surprising and unlikely places, the Nellis airspace and uh, the off-limits places, that the Korean uh, demilitarized zone. The dancing is done badly. It's silly dancing, but the video is skillful. <laughs> um, very cleverly edited, using rhythm, humor, and surprise to keep the audience interest up for about five minutes, which is probably as long as you can go for. The video is overlaid with an emotionally compelling soundtrack, music, um, Pran, written by Gary Scheiman, and a song performed by Palbasha Siddiq, with lyrics from the Stream of Life section of Tagore's Jitanjali. That's what that is. And we're moved emotionally as the piano starts, then we come into a sort of drum and bass, more rhythmic section, crescendo of strings, which pull on our heartstrings, arguably. We get an emotional response watching this pleasure, amusement, and even a sense of wistful sadness that we aren't there too. That was a point that Robert Dejale made in discussion in the AAA. Oh, I rather wished I'd been there. I felt sort of sad I wasn't there. Um, 
So there's a sort of nostalgia or longing in the response, perhaps. Or maybe you have to watch it about 50 times, like I had to start getting that. Um, there are exceptions. We see Matt mostly. That is what we see. But we see Matt in places, sometimes far away, sometimes close. And then we have the exceptions, the fast cuts of people rushing into the dance spaces. And the very unique moment when Matt does his dance with the Bollywood troupe, who was actually hired to do that. Um, when I gave this paper last time, um, Leslie Sharp was one of the discussants, and she was very scathing and said, oh, this is like Coca-Cola adverts. And I was a bit upset, because I hadn't thought of that. But when I was looking at the website the other day, just to check the figures, interestingly, the last comment was by someone calling himself a big Coke drinker, and he said... Um, Oh, what did he say? Inspiring, makes you love the human spirit even more, makes you wonder how we can have wars against each other. Keep dancing and thanks for that beautiful song. So there is a sort of element of it's the real thing and that kind of branding of a kind of global illusion that comes into this. In the amateurish and seemingly spontaneous and innocent quality of the dance clips, Matt's ethos might seem far removed from the spaces of global branding, but the sophistication of the video is very different and is probably more close to slick advertising techniques than Matt might like. And I'm going to say a little bit about Matt and branding before I finish. A um, few other points I can make, because I know I'm going to run out of time now. Um, Matt appears to be dancing in unpracticed place. Um, there is a sense that this is immediately accessible, anyone can join in, it's spontaneous, highly turnerian, we are communitas. Um, and it produces a very dispersed dance meaning, almost meaningless except for the pleasure of participating. Freed from cultural values, there is a sort of transcendental communita global communitas, global village incarnate. Matt's dance has the power to generate meaning through embodied participation um, inverse to the quality of skill. Nobody who joins in is particularly good at dancing. Everybody's doing very a bit like the weary Tayuban dancers in the Javanese example. Um, but Matt's dancing differs, of course, because he is reaching out to a, a potential global audience, whereas the Javanese Tayuban dancers are limited to the people who make the journey up the hill to the community where they dance or to the stage where the tourist venue is trying to simulate their work. Potentially, Matt's dance moments could constitute the biggest social uh, dance event in the world. Um, not that the individual ones necessarily, but the simplicity of the routine mediated by the internet has the potential to involve everybody if they wish. When I first saw this video, I didn't know anything about Matt. And I began to think, who the hell is Matt? And I started messing around on the computer more and more, finding more and more out about Matt. And Matt is not an amateur. Matt is really famous in America. He is a big celebrity, but it's that kind of celebrity that is not global. Even in the 21st century, celebrity so often is uh, location-specific. 
Um, he actually has a three-part lecture that lasts 75 minutes that he gives to students in Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont, from 2006, where he explains how he came to be doing this. And he said he'd been doing his dance since he was two, and then a friend suggested that they filmed him and they went on holiday together. And then he, his um, web presence took off after the invention of Web 2, of course, in 2005. Suddenly he was on TV and he was contacted by Stride Chewing Gum. Anyone ever heard of that here? Never heard of it. Anyway, Stride Chewing Gum provided the money for his travels and that film was paid for. And Matt has worries about being caught up in a commercial venture and was reassured because they said they weren't going to make a commercial and so on and so forth. So... This has quite a big kind of structure behind it. Uh, there is also the way in which the communities occur, these dance moments where people come in, are not just random, spontaneous events. And I found out in another lecture given in um, 2008 in Seattle, Matt explains how this works. And this is where the, this thing comes in. Um, Using in countries where people are using email a lot, he actually gets people to sign up and uh, he does release forms with everybody in the video and takes their photo. And he said uh, 25,000 people had signed up. And he sort of his unfortunate girlfriend has the job of managing all these things. So Matt is the upfront person. In the lecture, he says, here is me, I have the fame, and Melissa has the hard work and anonymity. Um, and I'll come back to that gender point in a minute. Uh, where people don't have access to email so readily, and he says in places like Africa, which anthropologists might be a bit dubious about, he uses a guerrilla style and turns up and children often come out and dance with him. And what he does there, he'll do, they'll do a few takes once the children stop fooling around. And he doesn't give them money, but he gives money to the local schools where he performs with the children. So he's trying to be ethical, although there is a big difference between how he handles the ethics in email-using societies and others, and that is you know, something we could discuss. So this is a highly structured kind of activity. It's not spontaneous. The other, the other thing is that Matt's dancing might not be situated in a culturally practiced place, but it's mediated by an American, an American with sponsorship from Stride Corporation. And in a way, this dancing is the movement dimension, as Adrian Kepler would say, of traveling, American traveling. The video is about the power of Americans to travel the world. This translocal accessibility is culturally determined. Um, and uh, he acknowledges this when he discusses these um, films in his lectures. And it's interesting, at one point he makes a big issue in his lecture about when he was nearly arrested in Greece for dancing um, the Parthenon. There are a number of critical comments on the site about where he goes and where he doesn't. And it's interesting that his latest activities have been in the Middle East. So there have been a lot of comments about him going to Tel Aviv and what about Palestine? So he's actually going doing a lot of filming in the Middle East um, earlier this year. Matt's dancing is also about American masculinity. 
He is the explorer, the risk taker, the entrepreneur, the big boy scout, short. Um, in the lecture, he talks to himself, uh, uh, there's a scene about him in a kayak. Anyway, he talks about himself as all man, and he plays with a sort of macho image. So there are all sorts of very specific cultural associations going on here. The other thing is that although he doesn't want to be a brand, he has become a brand. The song can't be taped for your thing because it's sold and downloaded for 99 cents. He also has written a book aimed at uh, aimless young graduates. Um, I haven't seen the book, I'm afraid. I haven't done my research thoroughly. His latest, there's a visa advert filmed in Japanese, um, for, um, which I'm not sure is serious or not, because there have been spoofs. He gave a spoof lecture claiming the whole thing was faked, everything was done with blue screen, and all the people dancing were animatronics puppets, and this caused the furore. In fact, I just saw that when I, before I went to the States last year, and I panicked. I thought, oh, no, it's all a fake. But in fact, it's not. That was a fake fake. So he is playing. What he does with this is actually playing with the idea of authenticity and space and place, which the web calls into question um, and subverts the kind of veracity of the visual. And for those of you, I don't know if people who know the site have already seen the spoofs, but I have to say, just finish off, um, there are wonderful spoofs. There's Where the Hell is Matt in 2029. There is Where the Hell is Matt in a house in Deauville one Sunday. Uh, la cuisine, la chambre à coucher. It's very, very funny. There's a lot of quite creative responses to this, as is the case with viral culture. The contrasting examples provide further evidence of the riches of dance, both for motivating analysis and for resisting analytical reductiveness. And it has been proposed that Research into computer-mediated space means that we are now shifting focus from place to interaction, from location to locomotion. And that's Annette Markham's 2005 paper. Um, there is an increase in the uncertainty principle in establishing the location of place. But as I've argued in the last part of this paper, technological mediation of dance as dance is revealed as less ultra-cultural and dislocated than might at first appear. Um, performances and their representations, or their representations, in cyberspace are not location-free, culture-free, or control-free. Place, American culture, individualism, and the whole issue of, I'm a brand, I don't want to be a brand, I just want to be me. There's a lot of that paradox in Matt's discourse in his lectures. Um, and ethical procedures all structure this event. And the generation of non-discursive meanings of fun and longing um, is common to the minimal dance of Matt and the two Javanese examples I discuss in different ways. So there's different ways of being physically involved in these things. Although it seems strange to say, like Bedoyo dance, Matt's dance has a sort of transcendence and the power to generate many meanings and associations and feelings of longing and nostalgia. But unlike Bedoya, it also generates global notoriety and lots of money. Like Taliban dancing, there's minimum dance effort, but maximum communicability and social engagement. And also the parallel between the focus on the male dancer and the feminine being the soundscape. So we have the woman's voice 
in that pran song and the man dancing, rather like we have in the Taliban where the focus is on the improvisatory man and the women dancers actually become singers only. Um, so, even in the apparently dislocated dancing of Matt, place is constituted by interaction and location does become a precondition for locomotion, whatever Annette Markham might say. Finally, um, just to return to the early proposition that space is the means whereby the positing of things becomes possible, the Merleau-Ponty quote I started with, we could perhaps extend this and posit that cyberspace is where it is being where remote things become possible. That's a suggestion that came out in discussion last year. Okay, I'll end there and thank you for your attention.